You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Our reading is from Exodus 13, and I'm reading from 1 to 16. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me every firstborn male. The first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether man or animal. Then Moses said to the people, Commemorate this day in the day you came out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, because the Lord brought you out with his mighty hand. Eat nothing containing yeast. Today, in the month of Abib, you are leaving. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, the land he swore to your forefathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you are to observe this ceremony in this month. For seven days eat bread made without yeast, and on the seventh day hold a festival to the Lord. Eat unleavened bread during those seven days, nothing with yeast in it to be seen among you, nor shall any yeast be seen anywhere within your borders. On that day tell your son, I do this because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. This observance will be for you like a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead that the law of the Lord is to be on your lips. For the Lord brought you out of Egypt with his mighty hand. You must keep this ordinance at the appointed time year after year. After the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and gives it to you as he promised an oath to you and your forefathers, you are to give over to the Lord the first offspring of every womb. All the firstborn males of your livestock belong to the Lord. Redeem with a lamb every firstborn donkey, that if you do not redeem it, break its neck. Redeem every firstborn among your sons. In the days to come, when your son asks you, what does this mean? Say to him, with a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed every firstborn in Egypt, both man and animal. This is why I sacrificed to the Lord the first male offspring of every womb and redeem each of my firstborn sons. And it will be like a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead that the Lord brought us out of Egypt with his mighty hand. Uh, Brothers and sisters, uh, let's do pray together uh, as we come to listen to God's word. Please pray with me as well. Uh, Gracious Father, uh, we know that uh, that you want us to know you more uh, through the proclamation of your word. Uh, And so we pray that this day uh, that you would open our eyes to see you more clearly. Uh, to see the wonders of of your uh, redemption of us in Christ uh, and the implications of that redemption for how we should live. Uh, We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, What does it look like to live as God's redeemed children? Uh, Maybe that that seems like a a bit of a random question to start with, but uh, you might remember that back in Exodus chapter 4, verses 22 and 23, God described Israel as his firstborn son. Israel is God's child, his chosen and precious child. And we've seen over the past couple of weeks that God's redeemed Israel from their slavery in Egypt. Right now, they're on their way out of Egypt. We've also seen that God really wants Israel to remember their redemption uh, from Egypt uh, and to live their lives in light of their redemption. Uh, So to that end, uh, he's already given them, uh, I guess, the one worship festival with two different parts, Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. 
Uh, Now, uh, as they're leaving Egypt in today's passage, uh, the focus starts to shift a bit to life in the promised land, in the land of Canaan. Uh, And in in light of that context, as part of his instructions about how his people should live in the promised land, uh, God does two things. He reiterates his instructions about that feast of unleavened bread, uh, and he gives his people a third tradition. Uh, something that, that's called the consecration of the firstborn. And what unites both of these traditions, as kind of strange as they might seem to us, uh, is that they're both about how God's redeemed son, his redeemed children, uh, should live once they get to the promised lands. And what we see in, in, the, in today's passage, in combination of these two traditions... Uh, is that living as God's redeemed children uh, involves both setting aside your old life and setting apart your new life. Living as God's redeemed children involves both setting aside your old life and setting apart your new life. Uh, So please do have Exodus chapter 13, verses 1 to 16 open in front of you. Uh, We're first going to look at the instructions about the Feast of Unleavened Bread uh, in verses 3 to 10 of this passage, where we see that uh, Israel is to set aside their old life, that they're to leave it behind. Because as God's redeemed children, uh, they're to be holy like their God. Uh, Take a look in verse 3. Moses uh, says to the people there, commemorate this day. Uh, Simply remember this day. What are they supposed to remember about this day? Well, look uh, in the rest of the verse. The day uh, you came out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, because the Lord brought you out of it with a mighty hand. Take a look at the two perspectives in that verse. From Israel's perspective, they came out of Egypt. Uh, But from the Lord's perspective, Israel only came out of Egypt because he brought them out. Right? By the power of his mighty hand. This idea that that God, uh, this truth, that God's redeemed his people from Egypt by the power of his mighty hand. That's a a truth that's repeated down in verse 9, verse 14, and in verse 16. You you get the idea that God really wants his people to remember that their redemption from Egypt was totally his work, not their work. And, And this is something we've got to remember as Christians too, isn't it? Uh, From our perspective, it can seem like when we became Christians uh, that it was our choice to turn away from our sin and to trust and follow Jesus. And if you're a Christian, uh, you did make those choices. I'm not saying you didn't. Uh, But you only made those choices because God was at work in your heart and mind by the power of his mighty hand. God's work comes first. In his sovereign love and power, God brought you out of your slavery into sin and he moved in your heart so that you would trust and follow the Lord Jesus and become a part of his people. Our redemption is completely of God's work and so it's completely for his glory. So because Israel's been redeemed from Egypt, uh, God wants them to always remember uh, his redemption, in particular by observing, by commemorating this Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, Look at the end of verse 3. God says there, uh, eat nothing containing yeast. Or or maybe more helpfully, uh, eat nothing that has been leavened. 
I say more helpfully, uh, simply because uh, when I read Eat Nothing Containing Yeast, it could give the impression that the average, uh, the average Israelite's kind of going down to the corner shop to, to pick out a packet of yeast, and then they're kind of emptying that yeast into their bread uh, so that it's leavened, it rises. Right, but that's not, what ha- well, that's not what's happening at all, is it? Uh, the Israelites didn't have a corner shop to buy a packet of yeast. What they did uh, was that they took a, an old scrap uh, from their previous loaf of leavened bread, they kind of left it off, uh, and then they kneaded that, that scrap from the old loaf into the new loaf, uh, so that it was thoroughly leavened throughout the batch uh, and it rose up. Uh, but God's saying that during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Israel is not allowed to do that. Right? Eat nothing which is leavened, God says. Uh, verse 4, you'll see, reiterates exactly when this feast is supposed to happen. I look at verse 4, it says, uh, Today, in the month of Aviv, you are leaving Egypt. What a Aviv there literally means ears of grain. A bit strange, but this is the month of spring. That's why ears of grain, the harvest is coming. That's also why there's talk in this passage about firstborn of animals. Because spring is the time when animals are born. This is the month in which Israel is leaving Egypt Uh, The month uh, which God said back in chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, would become the first month of the Israelite year. All so that they would remember their redemption from Egypt. Uh, And we see in verse 5 that because Israel is leaving Egypt, our focus is starting to shift uh, from the land of Egypt to the land of Canaan. We don't have time to to look at all the details here, but briefly in verse 5, we see three things about the land of Canaan. I take a look at the verse first. Uh, we see that this land is an occupied land. Well, it's not free. It's the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Right, but, but second, uh, despite the land being occupied, uh, we also see that it's a promised land. You see there, it's a land that the Lord swore to give to Israel's ancestors. Uh, in particular, if you read the book of Genesis, uh, God swore to Abraham. In Genesis 12, uh, let me check the verses, Genesis 12, verses 6 and 7, uh, and Genesis 15, uh, verses 18 and 19. Uh, and third, uh, we see that this promised land is a good land. It's a blessed land, a prosperous land, a, bla- a land uh, flowing with milk and honey. But the point here is that even when Israel gets to this good and prosperous land, are there to observe this feast of unleavened bread. That's what God expects them to do. In verses 6 and 7, where God reiterates the details of the feast. You see there in verses 6 and 7 that in this week-long feast, Israel's not only not allowed to eat any yeast, uh, they're not allowed to have any yeast in the house. It's like a spring cleaning, a sweep out of yeast uh, amongst the people of God. Now, let's let's be honest. This tradition does seem a little strange to us. Well, what's with what's with all the yeast? We've talked about this a little in previous weeks, but let me just briefly say that it's supposed to remind God's people Israel of two things. First, it reminds them that when they left Egypt, they left Egypt in a real hurry. There was no time to be kneading that kind of old loaf, the leaven from the old loaf, through the new loaf and waiting for it to rise. 
they just had to leave. But second, this tradition reminds God's people that now that they've been redeemed from Egypt, their life has to put on display a clean break from the lifestyle of the Egyptians. Every year, God is saying to his people through this festival, hey guys, you've got to let go of those old lumps of dough that you're still holding on to. Those old leavened lumps of dough that you're holding on to. You've got to let go, spiritually speaking, of those old ways of thinking and feeling and acting that are more influenced by the ways of Egypt than they are by the fact that you're now a part of my redeemed people. And of course, probably many Israelites would have said to God, but God, you don't understand. You know, I've got to hold on to this lump of bread. And this is important. It's what's going to make my next leavened loaf. But God says, no, you don't. Don't worry about it, God says. I've already provided for you through all your plundering of the Egyptians. We heard about that last week. I've provided for you. Trust me, God says. Now you've got to let go of that lump of bread and you've got to leave behind the life that you used to live in Egypt. Likewise, God says to you, If you're a Christian, he says to you, I've redeemed you from your slavery to sin by the blood of Christ, the ultimate Passover lamb. I've set you free from your old ways of living. In fact, I've not just redeemed you. I've adopted you into my family. You are my chosen and precious child. So God says to you now as my redeemed child, you've got to leave behind your old life of sin. You've got to set that aside. Because it's just not fitting for for someone who who professes to be a child in the family of the holy God uh, to be holding on to sin from their old life. Uh, So I wonder, uh, are there any aspects uh, of your old life of sin uh, that you're still holding on to? Uh, That you're refusing to leave behind, you're refusing to set aside uh, now that you're a part of God's people? And maybe it's a mindset of what you might call self-actualization. Well, yeah, it's kind of saying, yeah, I've become a Christian, but still I live as if life is fundamentally about me and me making a name for myself. I want to see my name up in lights. And maybe you want to make a name for yourself in your career or you want to make a name for yourself in your academic achievement in some way. Or maybe you want to make a name for yourself in your parenting. Right? You don't want to just be a mum. You want to be the best mum, a standout mum. Likewise for dads. For me, sometimes I'm tempted to, to, to think, oh, I'm going to make a name for myself in my ministry. I'm sure that's not just for pastors. I'm going to be more sacrificial than most. I'm going to serve more than most. I'm going to give more than most. And in so doing, oh, I'm going to make a name for myself. Uh, But as Christians, isn't it true? We've got to leave behind that way of thinking. Uh, Because our lives now are about about making the Lord's name great. Uh, Not about making a name for ourselves, making our name great. We've got to leave behind that mindset of self-actualization. We've got to leave behind a mindset of self-reliance. You know, a kind of a deep conviction that that if anything good's going to happen in life, it's going to happen because you relied on yourself. Because you relied on your abilities and your strength and your wisdom and your cleverness and your, your discipline. 
Uh, of course, if you're a Christian, you've got to leave behind this mindset of self-reliance. Right? To be a Christian is to embrace your weakness. It's to confess your sin. It's to admit that, that you tried living life by relying on yourself and it didn't work. You've got to rely on God and others. You've got to leave behind a, a mindset of self-reliance. And I've got to leave behind a, a mindset uh, of self-satisfaction. Right? This is for the, the Christian who, who, despite being a Christian, uh, continues to, to pursue satisfaction primarily in the people or things of this world uh, rather than in knowing and serving Christ. Now, that can happen, can't it? Now, Christ promises in John chapter 4 that if we come to him in faith, uh, he'll give us living water that will satisfy the deepest longings of our soul. Well, you, you've probably heard that promise. Uh, but we can be like the Israelites in, in Jeremiah chapter 2. You can read that later on. Uh, but God says, to, he re rebukes his people there uh, because they've rejected him, the spring of living water, uh, because they're clinging to their broken system. In that context, idols are idols that can never satisfy the longings of their soul. And we can do that too, can't we? Christ calls us to him, himself and offers us living water, but we cling to our broken cisterns. I wonder what your broken cisterns are. Maybe it's lust. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's pornography. And maybe it's a, an overconsumption of alcohol. And maybe it's a, an overconsumption of sport or Netflix or, or random clips about cats on YouTube. You know, a cat on a skateboard or something. Like some people are unduly addicted to that. I'm not meaning to make light of this. Or whatever it is, we've got to set aside our life of trying to satisfy ourselves through the people and things of this world. Because as the people of Christ, we're called to find our satisfaction primarily in knowing and serving Christ. Now, living as God's redeemed children involves setting aside our old life. And that's the truth in this feast of unleavened bread. And of course, if that truth is going to take hold of the hearts and minds of God's people, generation after generation, God's people have to teach their children. But that's what we see in verse 8. And then in verses 9 and 10, uh, we see that this feast is, is to be observed year after year so that the truth it symbolises uh, starts to deeply shape the lives of God's people. Look in verse 9. Uh, this observance will be for you uh, like a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead uh, that this law of the Lord is to be on your lips. Now, God is not saying to the Israelites that they've got to walk around with literal signs on their hands or a kind of post-it reminder note stuck to their forehead, you know, just so that they remember stuff. No, uh, he's saying to them that his intention here is at the end of the verse, uh, that, the, that his law, his teaching, his, his instruction would be on their lips. Uh, that is to say that, that uh, in their life, in their community life as God's people, that they would always be talking about and discussing and reflecting on and meditating on God's teaching, not just about the Feast of Unleavened Bread, but his teaching in general. So that they live their lives in light of his teaching. You can read more about that in Deuteronomy chapter 6, if you like. Our living as God's redeemed children involves setting aside 
our old life. Right? But because now that we're children in the family of the holy God, God calls us to be holy like him. But God also calls the Israelites to set apart their new life, because as God's redeemed children, their whole life now belongs to him. Look at verse 1. The Lord says to Moses, consecrate to me. We don't use that word consecrate very much these days, but it simply means to set apart something as holy, to kind of sanctify something, to set it apart for a particular purpose. It's there in the English language. For example, uh, Healesville Sanctuary uh, is an area of land that's been set apart for the purpose of wildlife. It's been sanctified. It's been consecrated for that purpose. Right. So here the Lord's saying to his people uh, that he wants his people to to set apart. What's he want them to set apart? Uh, He says, set apart uh, every firstborn male. Uh, The first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me. Uh, whether human or animal. Uh, This command pretty clearly looks back to the final plague that God sent upon Egypt, doesn't it? The the plague in which God claimed the lives of the firstborn sons of Egypt. Uh, That's even clearer down in verse 15. If you cast your eyes down to verse 15, uh, God's talking here about how parents are are supposed to explain the, the meaning of this tradition to their sons. Uh, And he says in verse 15, when Pharaoh uh, stubbornly refused to let us go, uh, the Lord killed every firstborn in Egypt, both man and animal. Uh, So in that final plague, the Lord claimed the lives of the firstborn sons in Egypt, the firstborn in Egypt. And now he's claiming the lives of the firstborn in Israel. Uh, Of course, in this culture, uh, the firstborn son in particular was incredibly important. It's hard to, for us to really get our head around this. The, the firstborn son well, was considered to, to be the very centre, the, the absolute future of the family. Uh, they had all sorts of extra uh, responsibilities and privileges, the, the, the right to the family inheritance, for example. Uh, so in this tradition, the Lord's saying to his people, uh, your, your, even your best and most precious things belong to me are your firstborn son. But of course, the consecration of the firstborn wasn't uh, just about uh, setting aside the firstborn son to the Lord. Uh, It was saying that the whole family belonged to the Lord. Much like a a captain of a sporting team represents their whole team when they go forward for the toss. Or, Or the CEO of a company represents their whole company when they sit at the negotiating table. So also the firstborn son here represents his whole family. Right? To say that this son belongs to the Lord is to say that the whole family belongs to the Lord. And that's one of the reasons why God was so angry with Pharaoh. Oh, and Pharaoh instituted his plan of killing the Israelites' sons. It wasn't just a vicious attempt at genocide. It was Pharaoh trying to usurp uh, the very rights and prerogatives that belonged to God alone. Israel was his firstborn son. They belonged to him. What right did Pharaoh have to claim ownership over Israel? Indeed, the Egyptians also belonged to him because God made them and formed them. They were his. 
Uh, so in claiming the lives of the Egyptian firstborn sons, God uh, was not being vindictive. Uh, God was simply justly reclaiming his rights as the God over all creation, uh, to whom everyone owes their praise and glory and thanks, for he made them. Uh, but now Israel not only belongs to God because he made them and formed them, uh, but because he's redeemed them. Uh, they are his. And it's clear in this passage that the Lord wants Israel to remember their redemption forever. So in verses 11 to 13, where we see that just like with the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Israelites are to continue observing this tradition of the consecration of the firstborn once they get to the promised land. I Take a look in verse 12. You see there that the Israelites are commanded to give over their firstborn to the Lord. Literally, actually, to pass it over to the Lord. Right? Another clear connection to that final plague in the Passover. Here they are, to pass over their firstborn to the Lord. And what did it mean to do that, to, to pass over the firstborn to the Lord? Well, look in the second half of verse 12. For most animals, uh, it meant offering them up as a sacrifice to the Lord. And there's details about that in, in Numbers 18, Verse 17, oh, the Lord says there, you must not redeem the firstborn of an ox, a sheep or a goat because they are holy, the Lord says. Instead, sprinkle their blood on the altar and burn their fat as an offering made by fire, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. So that's what they've got to do with most firstborn animals. But if you look at verse 13, you'll see that there's one exception the exception is the donkey. The Israelites, they were allowed to keep donkeys and use them in their work, but they were never allowed to eat donkeys or offer donkeys as sacrifices because God considered donkeys to be ceremonially unclean. But still, the firstborn donkey belonged to God. So God says, you've got to give him over to me still. How do they do that? Well, look at verse 13. There's two options there. One option uh, is to simply break the donkey's neck, uh, which is pretty hardcore. Not sure that I would have been able to do that. Uh, but thankfully, God provides a second option, uh, which is uh, that you could redeem the donkey by uh, sacrificing a lamb as the donkey's substitute in the donkey's place. Uh, remember, to, to redeem something uh, is to buy it back by the payment of a price. In this case, the redemption price is the substitute of this lamb in the donkey's place. But what's, what, take a look at the, the verse again. What's most interesting about verse 13 is that God puts the firstborn sons of Israel in the same spiritual category as donkeys. Now, that's not overly complimentary, but what God, what's God reminding his people of? He's reminding his people that they too are spiritually unclean. They too must be redeemed. Otherwise, their fate would be the same as the firstborn sons in Egypt. It would be the same as the donkey whose neck gets broken. So what was the redemption price for the firstborn sons? 
It's not actually specified in verse 13, is it? You look there. Uh, But in Numbers 18, verses 14 to 16, uh, the Lord gives some instructions to Aaron, uh, who by this stage in Israel's history uh, is heading up the priests in the tabernacle. Uh, The Lord says to Aaron, uh, everything in Israel uh, that is devoted to the Lord is yours. Uh, The first offspring of every womb, both man and woman, uh, that is offered to the Lord is yours. Uh, But you must redeem every firstborn son and every firstborn male of unclean animals. And here's the detail. When they are a month old, you must uh, redeem them at the redemption price set at five shekels of silver, according to the sanctuary shekel, uh, which weighs 20 gerahs. So as this tradition was more firmly established in the lives of the Israelites, uh, the the redemption price for firstborn sons was set at five shekels of silver uh, to be paid at the temple. This is why um, when uh, this is why, sorry, uh, Mary and Joseph take Jesus, their firstborn son, to the temple soon after he's born. Whether they take him there, uh, quote-unquote, in Luke chapter 2, verses 22 and 23, uh, they take him there to consecrate him to the Lord. But Mary and Joseph were devout Jews, that they knew what God's law required. They knew that their son belonged to the Lord. Uh, Of course, Jesus didn't have to be redeemed. Jesus wasn't spiritually unclean. Uh, But he did uh, have to be set apart for the Lord. His life did have to fulfill every requirement of God's law. Otherwise, later on, he wouldn't have been able to act as the ultimate Passover lamb. Remember, the Passover lamb has to be without blemish or defect. So Jesus' life had to fulfill this law of God, the consecration of the firstborn. So Mary and Joseph took him to the temple. And Jesus, even as a baby, was set apart for the service of the Lord. And Jesus spent his whole life doing just that, didn't he? Serving his father. In John 6, verse 38, Jesus said, I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. But all the way from the manger to the cross, Jesus knew that his life was set apart for his father's service. He did his father's will. If you reflect on it for a second... Uh, This whole act uh, of redeeming and consecrating the firstborn son must have had a powerful impact on parents in Israel. You're just there, you're kind of just starting your family, celebrating the birth of your firstborn son. And the first thing you've got to do is consecrate him to the Lord, is give him over to the Lord, declaring that ultimately the life of your precious firstborn son belongs to him and not to you. This is one aspect of what we do as Christian parents uh, when we present our children to be baptised or maybe in the alternative to baptism that we offer at DPC, a prayer and thanksgiving service. In both of those services, uh, something that we're doing is like we're kind of uh, usually, say in a baptism service, uh, I take hold of the child to baptise them. In doing that, it's like parents are entrusting their child into the arms of God. Not that I'm God, but, you know, representing God in some way, in an earthly form. So they're entrusting, you're entrusting your child into the arms of God, and you're acknowledging your dependence on God's grace for the salvation 
of your child. And then, of course, usually I don't go home with the child, I give the child back. Not because the child belongs to the parents, but because they have been entrusted with the child by God so that their child would, be, uh, would give their lives to serving God in God's world for God's glory. So in verses 14 to 16, having consecrated their children to the Lord, uh, it's not surprising that the Israelite parents, Israelite parents have the responsibility of teaching their children uh, about the meaning of this ritual. As they do that year after year, uh, it's once again to be like a sign on their hand and a symbol on their forehead. It's a constant reminder to God's people, generation after generation, uh, that they were redeemed from Egypt by the power of God's mighty hand. Uh, Of course, passing on the great truths of the faith like this is something that we as Christian parents are called to do too. In fact, to some extent, it's something that all adults in the church are called to do. We're called to, to, as Paul says in Ephesians 6, we're called to bring our children up in the knowledge and instruction of the Lord. So that one day, by God's grace, they would come to understand and accept the the truth of God's greatest act of redemption uh, through his son. So we've got to, as parents, take this responsibility quite seriously, don't we? It's often been observed that in any particular family or church or or even nation, uh, the gospel is only one generation away from extinction. And usually that's because a particular generation assumed the gospel. So for us as parents, what does that mean? It means we must never assume that our kids get the gospel. We've got to always be on the front foot, actively teaching our children the gospel. And I reckon that this is a challenge for us, uh, maybe in particular, uh, in a church which has such good kids' programs. It can be easy uh, in a church like ours uh, to be a bit complacent about teaching our kids. To be a bit slack. I'm talking just as much to myself as I am to you guys. Uh, So let's not let that happen. Let's be encouraging one another uh, to be the ones who take primary responsibility for teaching our kids for passing on the great truths of the gospel to them, uh, that they might do it to their kids too. Uh, The redemption and consecration of the firstborn son uh, was a constant reminder to the Israelites uh, that their whole life belonged to the Lord. Their whole life, even what was best and most precious to them, their, their firstborn sons. And you might say, but, but that's, that, I mean, that's, I just don't think I could ever do that. In fact, there's a part of me that thinks it's kind of unreasonable for God to expect the Israelites to, to give over their firstborn sons. But of course, it's not like God's asking us to do something that he wasn't willing to do himself first. You remember, we too had to be redeemed. We too were spiritually unclean. And we were redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. The ultimate Passover lamb, Christ, who is described in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, as the firstborn over all creation. Firstborn there, that doesn't mean that there was a time where Jesus didn't exist and then he was born. It means that Jesus, God's eternal son, is God's number one son. 
but he's the first, he's ranked first uh, among all of us, uh, God's redeemed and adopted sons. Uh, so in, in Romans chapter 8, uh, verse 32, Paul says, God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. God, uh, to redeem us and adopt us as his sons in his family, as his sons and daughters, had to give his firstborn son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? In Christ, God gave his whole life for you, even what was best and most precious to him, his firstborn son. So now we're called to give our whole life to him, even what is best and most precious to us. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, you are not your own, you were bought at a price. But a great price for your redemption from sin has been paid. The blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. So from now on, all you are and all you have belongs to God, your Father, forever. Your whole life belongs to him, even what is best and most precious to you. I wonder what that is for you. What is it that you kind of cling to before God? A bit like Gollum in the Lord of the Rings saying, my precious God, I'll never give that up for you. And maybe it's your precious time. You're prepared to give so much for God, but no more. No more time, God. And maybe it's your precious comfort. You, know, you do want to follow Jesus and you're happy to bear some cost, but not too much. And maybe it's your precious reputation. You cling to your approval in this situation. You just want to, don't want to experience the rejection of those people over there. You, you cling to your precious reputation. And maybe it's your precious house. You never do hospitality because you don't want people messing it up. I know you can't do hospitality now, but you know, application for later on. Maybe it's your precious car. You know, you never use it to serve a brother or sister in Christ because they might spill a coffee on your seat. You know. Maybe it's your precious family. Right, our families are precious, but it's possible to be so protective of our families that we never serve the Lord Jesus together. What is it for you? What is it that you're just not willing to give over to God, to set apart, to be used by God, to declare to God, this here belongs to you? Because it does belong to him. As the song we're about to sing says, this life I live is not my own, for my Redeemer paid the price. I pray today that those words wouldn't just be words upon our lips, but words that are deeply shaping our hearts. That we would say to God that this life I live really doesn't belong to me. It's not my own. And I live it for you. What does it look like to live as God's redeemed children? Simply put, it looks like living a life in which you're constantly setting aside your old life, and constantly setting apart your new life. Now let's pray. Our gracious Father, uh, we thank you for these great truths of redemption. Uh, we thank you that through Christ you have indeed redeemed us from our life of sin uh, and adopted us as your children. Uh, we pray, Father, uh, that as your children we would set aside our old lives, 
uh, that we might be holy as you are holy. Uh, And we pray, Father, that we might set apart our new lives, uh, that we might acknowledge that our whole life belongs to you, uh, even what is best and most precious to us. Uh, We pray in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.